Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Okay, welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have an excellent guest with us today, Eric Jennings. He's CEO and founder of Filament, who recently raised uh, $5 million. Is that correct, Eric? That's right. Yeah, so uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, can you give us kind of a brief overview, like what does Filament do? Sure. Yeah, first, thank you for having me. really, really appreciate the opportunity. Um, in a nutshell, Filament kind of has this this grand vision um, that's somewhat audacious and, and a little bit... Um, uh, kind of out there a bit. And then we have kind of this practical, you know, current, uh, very typical um, use case focus. So we kind of have these two sides of a coin that we constantly deal with. And so uh, the practical one is really we um, we build an IoT platform, an Internet of Things platform that includes a hardware component along with some protocols. The simple, uh, simple um, goal is to help industrial customers connect legacy infrastructure so these are companies that have huge amount of capital assets that are old. Sometimes they're 50, 60 years old manufacturing line or a um, factory floor or fleets of vehicles. And uh, our device can connect to these old machines and actually bring them online and give them an API. And then there's efficiency increases and things that that uh, they can glean from that. So it's kind of our practical aspect. And then this big grand vision is actually um, a little more nefarious and we get very excited about this. And that is... Um, um, you know, it's our strong belief that um, a the concept of a decentralized IoT is actually more valuable in aggregate than a bunch of silos, um, you know, each device talking to its own personal cloud, and the clouds can't talk to each other. And so the devices that we're actually using for our customers today actually have a decentralized IoT firmware stack on them, including some aspects of being able to deal with the blockchain, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, as well as some decentralized peer-to-peer um transport protocols. So it's kind of a way for us to kind of realize this future while solving what many consider to be a pretty boring problem. Yeah. So this uh, just, you know, IOT, that's Internet of Things uh, for mm-hmm. people that are there. And it's uh, really kind of a buzzword topic in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, why Why are you particularly like able to work on this stuff? I was reading a little bit of your bio. I even read the declaration on device independence, which mm-hmm. I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, your background with like uh, XMPP and Jabber. Like, why are you specifically kind of uh, able to kind of spearhead this type of an initiative? Yeah, you know, it's... um. It's, it's a good question. You know, we, um, our team and various people on our team have worked on the similar problem in other contexts for a couple decades now. Um, uh, you know, the, the, some of the founders of this team as well as some of the employees were um, founders and early employees at a company called Jabber. And you'd mentioned the protocol called XMPP that that company made. Um, it's an interesting story. So, you know, back about maybe 15 years ago or so, 
um, for those who used the internet back then, back in late 90s, mid 90s, there was uh, this concept of instant messaging. Like, you know, people today use Facebook Messenger or Google Chat to instant message each other. But back then, you had to use a separate application uh, program on your computer. And the popular one was AOL Instant Messenger. It's called AIM. And, um, and it had something like 70% market share, I think. And you always had to use their system to chat. And so they were basically a monopoly, a centralized, you know, uh, location to chat. And Jeremy, our CTO, and a couple other people had this idea of what would happen if anyone could run their own chat server, and then chat servers could talk to each other. And then you have kind of this federation of chat and all these different communication channels between people, between countries, and AOL is no longer in the picture. And so they set out to use, um, to build this company called Jabber, and the protocol that enabled that federation of chat was called XMPP. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, at the day, at the time, you know, AL was the, was the monopoly. And then over time, XMPP became adopted and started being used by Facebook Messenger and Google Chat and a lot of other chat clients. That at one point, there were over 1 billion people every day using that protocol through those services. And AOL was like less than 1% market share. So it shows what happens when you have kind of this vision of breaking things apart to naturally organize rather than kind of, you know, forcing a monopoly onto an area. And I'm not necessarily against, you know, large, large markets or large, you know, capital endeavors, if you will. But there's some interesting things that emerge when you have a naturally distributed system that can start to build new value on top of it that no one ever really foresaw. And so um, that ethos, that DNA in that in that earlier project has kind of come through now on this new project working like you mentioned into into the internet of things yeah so i mean obviously you're very interested in bitcoin and blockchain technology uh why is that i mean how does how do you see that playing in with you know these other uh, protocols in the internet and the other layers in the stack Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, we're a little bit different than um, what I think is typical. Well, not necessarily. Um, I'll, I'll rephrase. There's a large um, populace within the Bitcoin community that's focused very specifically on the currency or the financial aspect of, of Bitcoin. Um, we see Bitcoin as just kind of the first killer app built on top of this blockchain, you know, data structure. And the blockchain is actually very interesting to us um, for other reasons besides value exchange. Um, we have some very stringent needs around um, proving identity of a device. You know, if our devices are truly autonomous and they can discover other devices and they can interact with them directly and they can actually eventually transact value if they choose to do so, there's this concept of identity, like where, who owns this device, who has ability to be the administrator of this device. We think the blockchain plays a very important part in doing that in a decentralized fashion. And so we're leveraging the blockchain to... Um, to actually, um, it would be similar to how people understand how colored coins work. Um, we actually um, save the quote-unquote ownership of the of the device, cryptographically speaking, the ownership in the blockchain, and then the transfer of that ownership can actually happen on the blockchain, like you transfer Bitcoin. So um, it's very interesting to us because to claim a to claim to be a decentralized platform. We couldn't just store all the ownership in our own servers because that's kind of defeats the purpose. And so we really had to rethink through the stack top to bottom, best practices from the current internet, like you mentioned, as well as filling in the blanks where there were centralized systems um, with decentralized ones, whether they are blockchain-based or not. 
Yeah, so I get a, you know, a lot of people ask me like, oh, what what can we do with Bitcoin? And I'm like, well, currency is just the first application. You know, mm-hmm. we've got potentially thousands of applications on Indeed. on how we can apply this blockchain technology. So let's get down to like the nitty gritty. Let's get a specific sure. example of how we can we can apply this Bitcoin and this blockchain technology to a specific use case with an Internet of Things or with like a fleet of devices or sensors. Sure. Yeah. So we have a we have a handful of pilot projects, pilot customers we have now, and I'll use one of those. I'll obscure enough of the details that I'm not breaking any NDAs or anything, but um, it, it'll it'll be a really good example of the typical inbound interest we're getting from from very large customers um, leveraging blockchain. So there's this one um, one uh, group I'll say who wants to monitor um, power lines across a very, very large area. So this is a country that um, is huge amounts of rural um, area that needs to be monitored. And these power poles that are in this area um, fall down. They either rot or they get hit by cars, drunk drivers and whatnot, or just by storms. And right now it's so rural that it costs them something like two to $300 million a year to monitor their infrastructure, just the power lines across their entire country. And the power company pays for this and they have trucks and they have people going out there and they have to have, you know, stations out there that their trucks can park at and stay overnight because it's so far out. And uh, and so what we're what um, we've been working with with this company is to, you know, see what what could happen if we could actually add our device on each power pole. Um, and the device would actually monitor whether it falls down because our device has an accelerometer in it. So you could imagine like if it's mounted to a pole that's vertical and if the pole falls, the accelerometer, you know, changes um, its axis enough where you can send a message off. Um, our small device has a radio, a very long range radio and has some of these sensors. It's a standalone system and the radio that's on it can actually send messages up to 10 miles line of sight between devices. So it's very long range very low bandwidth, but very long range. And so you can imagine having devices like ours on power poles gives you kind of a very large network across an entire, you know, region or country. And, um, and how this plays into the blockchain is that, um, for our product, we actually don't sell our product outright. We don't sell our hardware, but we do sell access to it monthly. Um, and so, you know, in this particular use case, this, this organization would purchase a whole host of our devices we will work out how to get them deployed, whether we do that or they do that. And once they're up there, they start paying us per device per month. And as long as they continue to pay that, um, we continue to keep the devices up and running. So we actually leverage um, some aspects of the blockchain to enforce that monthly recurring revenue because um, our devices fundamentally uh, don't, they, they can work on or offline. They don't ever require the internet connectivity in order to work. And so, um, and so what would happen is that the company would pay us and they can pay us traditionally, you know, through a wire transfer or credit card or do- us dollars it doesn't have to be Bitcoin. In fact, we don't accept Bitcoin right now for payment today. Um, but they would pay us. And then what we would do is we'd update the actual contract. Um, some would call it a smart contract and we can get into what that means in our world in a little bit, but we have a small contract that lives on each device. So we would update the contract, load it onto the device, um, either directly or over um, over the mesh, you know, from an internet connection. Um, um, the contract can be any term. And when the contract expires, the device goes into a reduced mode state. The contract is renewed. Like your, It's just like the data plan on your phone. So the, the blockchain is very important for us in that aspect because we actually store ownership of that smart contract for each device in the blockchain. And so 
you know, out of the gate, Filament owns all those. But down the road, you know, for an OEM type play, let's say a company comes to us and says, we want to install your device inside of all of our new vehicles. We can actually transfer ownership of that smart contract to them in the blockchain. And now they can charge their customers recurring revenue for the for our hardware and our stack. And we could take a small percentage or something. So there's this kind of higher order level of like asset ownership and um, ownership of a contract. And you know, secure transfer of a contract that the blockchain gives us a huge benefit in that we would otherwise have to do um, in a very centralized fashion, also in a very um, legal fashion, slow fashion, writing up contracts, you know, having escrow services, things like that. It, it gets kind of tricky when you do that. Um, and it also means that, you know, big companies would have to trust us, who's a small startup, holding all these smart contracts directly, which can be high risk, um, you know, because uh, fundamentally these devices we build well, could outlive the lifetime of our company if they're decentralized, and that we think that's a very important um, feature. Yeah, so this, I mean, this is this is a really fascinating uh, area because uh, F. A. Hayek, you know, he wrote about how it's this distribution of knowledge throughout mm-hmm. everybody, and how everybody's got like something that they know better than anybody else in the world, whether it's their own state of being mm-hmm. or something else. And so, really, what you're what you're talking about is being able to deploy these devices all over the place so that knowledge is able to more easily flow uh, in our economy. So it's going to make the economy much more efficient. Indeed. Right? Indeed. Uh, yeah. We, you Absolutely. know, like the example with the power line. I mean, how in order to gain the knowledge that a power line has fallen down right now, uh, they have to send out trucks and individuals and, and they have to negotiate like, you know, employment contracts and per diem and like all mm-hmm. this stuff in order to That's acquire right. that knowledge. Whereas you're basically saying, Hey, look, we can automate all of this and do it extremely cheaply. And then not only that, we can deploy the device and then you can actually interact directly with the advice, with the device to pay to acquire that knowledge. That's exactly right. Yeah. And what's really interesting now, right? Just like a, any free market, when you have these devices deployed all over a large region, if they are truly autonomous, they can accept payment from more than one buyer for additional data that's on that sensor, as long as the original buyer is getting the data and the value that they've paid for. And there's a quality of service guarantee that or a service level agreement we would guarantee. But, you know, if you imagine this entire area with this network that's deployed that has devices that are probably hardly ever sending data, except for when a pole falls, which is unusual, but happens, there's an almost 100% capacity network sitting there that perhaps FedEx need to send a message from the outback, um, you know, way back in the field somewhere over to, you know, maybe an SMS type message that goes to the mesh. Um, that would give them a huge, you know, additional ability to pay that device. Hey, send this message guaranteed. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, one millibitcoin or something. I don't know, but it's, um, they could pay in whatever capacity they needed to. The device can now actually be its own agent within a market um, for sending data or giving out sensor data that it, it creates itself because our devices have, you know, four or five sensors on them. In addition to the accelerometer has like light temperature and humidity. So someone wanted to get the temperature data all across the entire country. They could do so by essentially paying the devices for that data. Um, The devices become agents within a market essentially. Yeah. I think this is just absolutely fascinating because uh, I think it's 30 years ago, the CEO of FedEx, you know, using FedEx as the example, uh, he said that information about the package was almost if not more important than the package itself mm, indeed yes. and 
And you know, just with Bitcoin, I mean, I was I was presenting uh, at a conference over in Europe, and the chief legal counsel for the U.S. Fed happened to be there. And during his presentation, he said, "You know, it's absolutely ridiculous that we can track a five dollar package, but we can't track a five hundred thousand dollar wire transfer." <laughs> <laughs> right. And and now, which is very ironic when you think about yes. it. Yes. Um, but I mean, that's what we're beginning to see, right? We're like all of these innovations in financial technology and fintech. Uh, not only are we going to be able to track the $500,000 wire transfer, but you're talking about we're going to be able to track like these, these payments of fractions of a penny to a device in order to acquire the, the relative humidity, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, if wanted. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Exactly. If there's a market for it, that's right. It's available. So are these, are these devices also going to be able to function as like oracles for other smart contracts that might be out there? Because, you know, if we, if we're, if we got these devices deployed all over the place and we've got smart contracts that are uh, prediction markets on the weather, for example, would these devices then be able to serve as oracles for those types of smart contracts? Yeah, yeah, that's that's how we see this playing out, or at least one possible avenue that this could play out in is that when, you know, oracles that are most close to the data that they need to provide as source of truth um, are usually the most reliable ones, obviously. Um, and so we could see these as being a very good play um, for for being, you know, presenting as oracles and possibly even charging for that, that, uh, that functionality as kind of a source of truth. Um, as long and, and there's some details in the technology to make sure that that works right. Like there's actually some, you know, electrical engineering tech that needs to go in to make sure that, you know, your humidity sensor is accurate and precise because things can be precise and be inaccurate, right? You can have five decimal places and be off by five degrees Celsius and it doesn't matter how accurate you are or how precise you are. Um, you have to be accurate too. So there's some things we'd want to make sure we need to get right, even up to um, going down the road of certifying or calibrating some of our devices to make sure they're within a spec that people expect when they purchase that data. Um, but once that we go down that road, then by all means, they could act as oracles for other smart contracts, um, pointing to them to say, like, you know, if the temperature goes up this amount, then, you know, trigger the smart contract clause to execute and uh, pay whoever needs to get paid based on that that data. Wow, very interesting. Uh could you could you talk a little bit about like this IBM and Adept and perhaps uh, mention a little bit about the Samsung demo that uh, was at CES? Sure. Yeah. So um, we're big fans of what the IBM Adept team had uh, has put together. You know, it started out to our understanding, it started out as a research project, kind of a skunk works within IBM uh, last year. And um, and what happened is IBM had a team of like nine or ten, I believe. Um, head, headed by a man named Paul Brody, who's a really great visionary in this space, um, wrote a paper uh, called Device Democracy. It's available online, PDF. You can get it off of the IBM website. And it really outlined kind of what we're talking about here, but more specifically within the consumer space, less in the industrial space. But fundamentals were the same in the sense that if these devices can be autonomous, there's some interesting new things that happen. A device can purchase its own, um, you know, um, uh, replenishment for things that run out, consumables, if you will. It can check on its own warranty information. And if the warranty is in force still, it could theoretically request a service call on its own without you know, interacting with the owner of the device, the, the human owner, if you will. Uh, so there's some really interesting models and ideas that came out of the ADEPT white paper. Um, what they then did is that they got Samsung on board to join them in a demo at CES um, early this year to kind of build out a proof of concept of this idea. Um, and the, I forget exactly what, I, I was just told recently what ADEPT stood for and I don't remember. Um, the, the rumor has it that they were gonna call it 
distributed IoT, DIOT, but it was too close to the word idiot. And so they decided not to <laughs> use that. And that's when we suggested you should have called it industrial distributed IoT and it would have been perfect. But uh, <laughs> anyways, that was a, just a, a, a rumor I heard, which made me chuckle last week. But um, long story short, Samsung and IBM got together and they did this demo that had the Samsung washing machine um, able to sense its own um, detergent because it was one of those very fancy Samsung machines, their top of the line one. It would know when the detergent's low. It put the detergent in, into the washing machine. And when it got low, it would actually make a request and make a purchase um, for more uh, detergent on Amazon. And then it would just notify the human owner uh, via text message, hey, I bought more I bought more detergent. should be here Thursday, something like that. Uh, they also had some other use cases with the warranty, like I mentioned, the servicing, um, as well as um, a t- the washing machine and the, um, the television, Samsung television, actually... Um, negotiating market price for electricity and deciding when each of them would turn on and run their cycle based on market rate of, of electricity in the home. So some really interesting concepts of like devices starting to negotiate and figure out what's most optimal for the goals at hand and um, in, in two or three different contexts. Um, I, you know, and, and what's interesting and, and uh, you know, rumor has that I don't have any you know facts of this at all, but it seemed like the IBM Adept project and the CES demo got much more press than anyone was expecting. It was kind of the side thing. It was a Skunk Works team within IBM. Um, and IBM has a formal IoT group, you know, entire you know arm of their company, and they've put a lot of investment and focus on it. And the Adept team was kind of talking about this distributed, decentralized, not really anti-cloud, but not cloud-centric anymore. You know, devices talking directly to each other. And, you know, IBM proper is like very heavy on the cloud and centralization, at least they are today. Um, and so it caused some internal discussion around the direction that IBM should go and the leadership it should take, if any, in this in this realm because of um, of their current efforts. Um, but at the same time, IBM realized there was a huge interest in this, much more than anyone expected. So um, it's to my understanding, they finally gotten to the point where they figured out how they're going to move forward in this, and they've kind of reestablished. Um, their intent to to continue on this road and we're talking to them now about um how that will play out and how we can somehow collaborate since we have such similar visions you know but um the adept paper named three protocols that they saw as essential for this distributed iot and the first one was blockchain uh the second one was this one called telehash and the third one is BitTorrent. um and so uh we've taken those three and kind of expanded to five protocols um telehash Hash happened to be the protocol that that our team has de- developed. Jeremy on our team has developed. That's the next generation of XMPP, and um, and so there's already some kind of cross pollination there, where you know they were using a protocol we developed or suggested to use it, and we wanted to kind of build out on this as well. So it's just a lot of very similar vision. It made a lot of sense to work together more closely. Wow. <laughs> the coming of Skynet, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Well, we're trying to make sure that doesn't happen, but you're right. That's that's right. <laughs> well, I guess it kind of feels like that. Yeah, I guess not to end on a morbid note. Uh, what would you be? <laughs> what would you say you're most uh, optimistic about in this space? Then, you know, I'm a huge fan of like you know, uh, you know, traditional free markets and you know, von Mises and some of these other ones. And I, you know, I'm just like, I think about you know. He has a book called Human Action. Very, it's a big tome. It's it's great. It's um, there's a concept in there that I use a lot in in thinking about this space called praxeology, and it's defined basically as like people will do what they do. Um, psychology talks about why people do what they do, but praxeology just says people will do what they do, and they'll 
they'll minimize their own discomfort um, or, or, you know, actors in a market, if you will, if you want to look at it from an economic standpoint. And it's kind of obvious, it's kind of self, you know, descriptive, but at the same time, when you start to look at it through the lens of the internet of things and this huge, you know, explosion in, in connected devices, there's some interesting things that start to happen um, and starts to leverage um, some of the bigger issues that society faces today. So without becoming too idealistic, I think that if we can build a decentralized IoT ecosystem that includes many manufacturers, many vendors, not just us, not just IBM, not just Samsung, but actually have this larger vision where um, we can replicate what happened in the early web days, back in the days when you could make a website and you could link to any other website without asking for permission, without paying anybody, without getting approval from your web hosting company, you would just write the HTML, link to it, and now you were linked. And if they wanted to link back, they could, they didn't have to. That kind of loose, very low friction environment, um, it's our opinion, led to all of the value that is on that is built on top of the web today. Google's and Facebook's and WordPress and you know all of these different things are enab were enabled because of that simple kind of um, openness. And we started looking at, at the IoT space and starting to see it become siloed at a, you know kind of by default because um, for various reasons, it's our opinion. It's because it's a little bit short-sighted. You know, there's some there's some value to siloing a thing. That's why Facebook is so big, but it's a short-term win, long-term loss. And so, praxeologically speaking, we thought if we can have this kind of a bigger ecosystem, then there will be all entire new markets built on top of a, you know, just like the Facebooks and Googles built on top of the web, what will be built on top of a decentralized IoT um, where people will act to minimize their own, you know, discomfort um, and, and build new solutions to things, things like, you know, can we fine grain monitor, you know, climate change? And if we could, what does that mean? If, is, are we close enough where there's a group of scientists right now that if they had fine grain data, they could actually crack um, some new discovery within that space that helps us move the needle on climate change or, you know, you name your, your, your concern at this time, but, um, you know, we're optimists and we think that it would be used for generally good. Um, just like the web has been used for generally good and has really pushed forward entire society for better, we think. And, and we don't want to lose out on value on the IOT space because of some short sightedness and greed, quite frankly, to, uh, to get some short wins or some early exits, um, as a siloed IoT, you know, space versus a, a more open one that might take a little longer to build. Well, I guess we won't grouse about the bit license and all the implications <laughs> it has to stifle this right. type of innovation. But right. uh, you know, it does kind of uh, raise an interesting uh, possible future. You know, where where all of the food in our fridge is really just a microtransaction that doesn't even arise to materiality in terms of us needing to make or not make that decision because it's sure. the equivalent value of a fraction of a penny in order to fill up our fridge with all the food that we could possibly want. I mean, we really could be moving into an era of just massive abundance due to all these mm -hmm. technological changes and robotics and the implications all that are going to flow from all of that. And then all of that being managed through, you know, the algorithms that run our lives uh, being mm -hmm. managed through these types of uh, protocols at the end of the day. It's uh, true. Yeah, there's almost like a post-consumer society, perhaps, um, you know, if, if we do it right. It could also go south. It could go dystopic, I suppose. Um, you know, there's a lot of power there, but we really do believe that the decentralized side is going to be the... Um, the safest against bad actors, you know, I mean, you know, power concentrates, we all know this. Um, we see it time and time and time again throughout history. And uh, even with the Jabber days, right? Like, you know, with Jeremy and his team, Federation was good. Federation was, you know, anyone could run their own server. 
Um, but what happened is that over time, federation led to consolidation um, because that's the natural way of things, it seems like, in societies, you know. So we had, you know, thousands of servers and then we got down to the Facebook and Google servers, server farms. And then, you know, there we are with just two again. And so this time with Telehash, it really does break them down direct peer to peer. There is no server component within Telehash, unlike XMPP, which we think is kind of because we learned our lesson basically from the last one. Wow. It's just been absolutely fascinating uh, conversation. Thanks so much for uh, being with us. And of course, thank you. Uh, you know, I'll link to the the Declaration of Device Independence post in the show notes. Great. And then uh, we can find you at filament.com. Is that That's right? correct. F-I-L-A-M-E-N-T dot com, filament.com. Yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so we've had with us uh, Eric Jennings, CEO and founder of Filament, talking about the Internet of Things. Thanks for being with us, Jer- uh, Eric. Thanks so much for having me. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at Bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.